Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. If you listen to this show, you know we get really excited about cookbooks when they're more than a mere collection of recipes and techniques. Give us stories. Show us family pictures. We want to get to know the cooks behind the cookbooks. Ahead this hour, Joanne Lee Molinaro is our guest. Joanne is the content creator and writer known as The Korean Vegan. She's been sharing stories about food, family, and culture since she started a blog back in 2016. Her TikTok videos exploded in 2020. Her first cookbook is a New York Times bestseller, and it's out right now. It's called The Korean Vegan Cookbook, Reflections and Recipes from Oma's Kitchen. Oma, that's Joanne's mother. We get to know her a bit, too, because the family stories Joanne tells so beautifully They're often about her parents' immigrant experience and how it shaped Joanne's journey both in the culinary world and beyond. Joanne, thank you so much for joining us on Seasons. We're very happy to have you. Well, I'm so excited to be here, Marisol. So most cookbooks don't begin the way yours does, which is with a literal slurp. S-L-U-R-P-I-N-G, period. Why start there? You know, I've always been a big believer in the maxim, show, not tell. And I really wanted the book to be very immersive. I didn't want it to be one of those books that sort of, oh, this is pretty nice pictures. I'll look at it every once in a while, and then it'll just collect dust on a shelf. I really wanted the readers to feel connected with the person who was writing the book. And I felt the best way to do that was to immediately drop them into a scene from my childhood. And the first thing I can think of is my dad slurping the tenjang chicken. It's such a like <laughs> recognizable sound in my kitchen. <laughs> my kids tell me I make too many noises when I eat now. It, it's, it's like a trigger thing for me now. I can't help it. <laughs> It's a beautiful thing. It means you appreciate the food. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's what I appreciate. So what what was mealtime like as a child growing up in your family? Mealtime was very strict, actually, like many of the things from my childhood. My parents demanded that we have mealtime every day. I was not allowed to skip from mealtime. I was not allowed to say, oh, I have too much homework or something like that. I had to come every single day to the dinner table, but we didn't talk very much. I remember growing up, I used to watch Family Ties. That was like my favorite show on TV. I was in love with Alex P. Keaton. (laughs) And I was like, oh, they're so loud during dinner. They talk, you know, they talk about what they did that day. They fight sometimes, they argue. And we never did any of that at the dinner table. We just ate, then we got our business done, cleaned up, and then went back to what we were doing. What do you attribute that to? The fact that there was no, tell me about your day, what was your high, what was your low? What do you attribute the non-communication way of communicating to? I think there are a lot of things actually, Marisol. I mean, some of it is, of course, language barrier. And I think in many immigrant households, as a result of that, there may be less 
communication period, just because the people in the family have sort of just made do with the fact that, well, I can't communicate this effectively because I don't speak the same language. So I'm just not going to bother. So there's a, a little bit of that, I think. I think the other thing is, you know, for my parents and for my grandmother, who was often at that dinner table, who prepared the dinner in many cases, eating is very serious. It is not like a jokey thing. It, you know, it's, you know, it can be a pleasurable thing, but fundamentally it's a survival thing. Like it's a very serious thing. And I think that was the way it was taught to me. Like even at breakfast, if I didn't finish every last drop of food, I was not allowed to leave the table. You know, I couldn't go to school. I would be late. I would miss the bus because I didn't drink every last drop of milk or have my hot dog or whatever it was that my grandma made for breakfast. It was a very serious thing because for them, the notion of skipping a meal or not eating everything was completely offensive. You know, it's like we, ha you know, grew up with no food. Now we have food. You better eat it. So instead of viewing it as a time of, you know, fellowship, merely fellowship and getting together, it was also almost like a job. I, I grew up down south and it was the same thing. Like you, you got to eat everything off your plate. No one leaves mm -hmm. a table. You know, you have to eat every little green bean or if there's a tiny little bit of broccoli, you better eat it all. Absolutely. And uh I would sometimes fight with my grandma. Like, I don't want to drink all this milk. I don't need it. And um, my grandmother was a very tough lady. She was a single mom for most of her life. And, you know, she grew up uh, right after the war taking care of her children. So she would brook very little nonsense from her tiny little American daughter. <laughs> like, eat your food right now. <laughs> All these immigrant stories are so fascinating to me, and I wonder how you take that experience or how you've taken that experience at the breakfast, lunch, or dinner table with your family and sort of evolve from that in terms of your own eating, which I'm attempting to lay down the path for how we get to that experience to the Korean vegan. That's a really good question. Obviously, because my experience is so vastly different from the ones of my parents and certainly my grandparents, I only recently really became intimately familiar with my parents' past and how much of their lives they spent starving. I mean, in many cases, they came very near death uh, from lack of food. That sort of trauma I don't know how to erase that. I don't know that you really can. And I think it sort of inveigles its way to the dinner table, to our conversations, to why they were so strict about school. And no, you can't go into acting. <laughs> you must go into something like math, you know, like all of that, you know, kind of plays into it. And then in terms of just the evolution and how that affected my own dinner table when I became an adult, it's a really good question. I grew up in abundance and I grew up eating out whenever I wanted to. And I think what ended up happening was I wanted to eat out all the time because my parents were always like, no, you have to eat Korean food, whatever we make out of the produce in our backyard. You know, my grandmother was a farmer, so she farmed our backyard, whatever we got from the Korean grocery store. And I was like, no, I want McDonald's, spaghetti, Ponderosa, fried chicken. I don't want this stuff. <laughs> when was the last time you heard Ponderosa, Chef? <laughs> it's 
It's, it's been a while. Wait a minute. <laughs> it's funny if there was Sizzler, but I remember they had that like make your own soft serve ice cream bar. Yep. Ah, that was baller. <laughs> that was what I'm talking about there. <laughs> oh, yeah. We loved Ponderosa. And we only got to go like once a year when it was somebody's birthday. And so, again, we associated Ponderosa with really good times. And, uh, you know, when I left Chicago to go to college when I left my parents home. Oh my gosh. It was like a festival for me every day. I was eating pizza, ice cream, waffles, chicken, you know, all these American foods that I felt I had been wrongfully denied um, my whole life. And it was, it was fun for a while, but not great for me. (laughs) Ultimately. (laughs) Were those trips to fill-in-the-blank pizza joint, fill-in-the-blank fast food joint with those, the early stages of, okay, I got to clean up my act, metaphorically speaking, and literally? Yes, that is exactly right. I was in college for three years, and I would say during that whole time, I was so careless about how I filled my body. I just ate whatever I wanted. And also college food it's not great for you. <laughs> you didn't like the cereal bar and the. Uh... No, I wasn't. I mean, I did, but I probably shouldn't have liked it quite as much as I did, I guess is a better way of putting it. I mean, every day it was the waffle machine and I would put like M&M's whipped cream, ice cream, like whatever I wanted, you know, and I think perhaps there's a place for that kind of indulgence if you can have it in, in your life. But like you said, it really did set the stage for me. Physically, for sure, because I gained about 35 pounds during that time. And also just metaphorically, like having a better understanding of, you know, living a more purposeful, intentional life, like even as it surrounded food, but also like you can't just like recklessly do things all the time, like that time in your life where you could just do whatever you want and you'll be okay and there won't be consequences that are long lasting, that time is is really coming to a close. You're an adult now. You know, these decisions that you make, whether it's, you know, what you eat, what you study, who you talk to, who you're friends with, who you fall in love with, these can have very long-term permanent ramifications. Yeah, I think that time of your life is really important though. That time of your life is really, really important because when you have that time in your life that you're talking about where you're eating the waffles where you're putting everything in there or you're putting the giant cereal bar. I mean, that's that's learning who your food self is, though. You know, I think that's a really important thing that we all go through in some capacity. You know, what, what you learn from it is what's important, I think. I think that's a really great way of putting it. You know, you're learning who you are, your food self, or you're learning who your f- food self isn't. Right. And that really was the case for me. I was trying all these different foods and I was very dissatisfied with them. I was like, I don't like this. I'm doing it because I feel like I should because I wasn't allowed to before. But I'm actually realizing that I really like Korean food. This food that I quote hated, you know, from one through 18, all of a sudden I was saving all my money. At the end of the week, we had this little cup, you know, the bathroom cup, (laughs) cheap bathroom cup that you use to wash out your mouth. Yes, exactly. We had those and we had it sitting at the corner of our little card table and we would put our leftover change in it every day. And at the end of the week, we would use that money to go to the local Korean restaurant, you know, mom and pop shop. And we would order sundubuchige at like, you know, tofu stew. And like, that was my favorite meal of every week. So the irony of that is that 
I was discovering what was really important to me culturally, as a family, and absolutely gastronomically. When you talk about Korean food, I wonder if we could go back to your mom's experience, your oma, and how that figures into mm-hmm. your journey. Oma, as I talk about in the book, her earliest story, it's not her memory because she was too young to really call it her memory, but I imagine that the story was shared with her by her parents and perhaps her older sister who was old enough to remember this. Her earliest story was of nearly dying. In fact, um, her parents, my grandparents, thought about drowning her. And the reason for that was during that time, it was the beginning of the Korean War. Everyone was trying to evacuate North Korea, which is where my mother was born at that time. And uh, they were told they needed to escape to the southern region of the peninsula through a U.S. Navy ship. Unfortunately, it took two weeks to get there from where they lived. And by that time, you know, walking for two weeks with two babies, my mother being one of them, she had no food. They had no water. And she was dying. She was in complete agony. And I don't have children, but I can't even imagine being a parent against the backdrop of war, having no food, no water, no money, no understanding of the future, and watching your infant daughter wailing because she's starving to death. And so, you know, they thought about drowning her to put her out of her misery because they didn't know what the future held for them. But luckily, an American soldier saw that my mother was screaming uh, on that Navy ship and gave her a Hershey bar. And ultimately, that chocolate bar is what saved her life. And so this is the story of her life is starvation, is need, this idea of food safety I mean, people use that a lot right now, food security, food safety, food accessibility, that takes on an entirely different meaning for people like my mother and my father. It's not about, I want organic kale in my grocery store. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's just not how they view things. And so, especially when I went plant-based uh, and I told them that I was going to forego meat for the rest of my life... For them, it was a very difficult concept. They're like, what are you talking about? We worked so hard. We gave up so much so that you could have meat on your table every single day. And now you're telling me that you have the audacity to choose to give it up. And it was then that I realized that my decision, and I'm not saying this is true for everyone, but my decision to go vegan is a very privileged choice. It is very, very steeped in privilege. I am very lucky to be able to fill my dinner plate with the things that I want. My parents were not that lucky. You're listening to our conversation with Joanne Lee Molinaro, the Korean vegan. Later in the hour, we'll learn about some Korean pantry staples and get into a few recipes from the book. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, we talk more with Joanne about how she found ways to merge her commitment to plant-based eating and her Korean heritage. I had actually been flattening my own cultural cuisine by thinking that it was merely short ribs, pork belly, and fish sauce. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're spending the hour with Joanne Lee Molinaro. She's built quite a community of fans and followers online where she's known as the Korean Vegan. Her first cookbook is out right now. It's called, appropriately, The Korean Vegan Cookbook. Earlier, Joanne shared what it was like growing up on Korean food, indulging in an American diet as a college student, and rediscovering her cultural cuisine as an adult. Love, it turns out, inspired her to embrace veganism. If it sounded as though she had to come out as a vegan to her parents, she kind of did. When I told my mom that I was going plant-based, her immediate reaction was, no, you need animal protein. Like you need animal protein to be strong and to survive and things like that. She wasn't hostile about it. From her perspective, though, it was just like, you can't do that. That's not safe for you. We did everything we could to make sure that you would be strong and that you would live a long life. Why would you choose to do something that's so antithetical to that? And this is coming from a health professional. And she's a nurse her whole life. And she understands the dangers of meat and fat and saturated fats, cholesterol, all of those things. Right. And yet she's saying, no, you, you need animal protein. But how did you embrace veganism? Like what made you make the turn? I embrace veganism for a very silly <laughs> reason. Really, it's like because my <laughs> then boyfriend wanted to go vegan. And oh, I was boy. like, <laughs> okay. I really didn't want to. I was paleo at the time, which is basically the exact opposite. I believed in high fat, high animal protein, low carb. I thought that was the path to health. And I thought this vegan thing was the path to no health. <laughs> like That's what I thought. <laughs> so, you know, when my boyfriend, he's now my husband, was like, no, I, I want to try this plant-based diet. He had read a book by Rich Roll, who is like his hero. He's an ultra runner. My husband's a very athletic runner, and he thought that going plant-based would help him with his athletic goals and then also ensure a longer life. His father had just passed away from autoimmune disease, and he was worried that perhaps he was headed down the same path. I didn't want to join him. I didn't think that it was possible for me to be Korean and to be vegan at the same time. Like kimchi, fish sauce, <laughs> pork belly. I was like, mm, I don't think so. But it became clear pretty quickly into his exploration of the diet that A, it was not a phase, and B, if I didn't join him, it would create a wedge between us that would make things very difficult for us to sustain a relationship. Wow. So ultimately, I was like, fine, it's not going to kill me. I'll try it. And that's what happened. My chef brain goes, wait a minute, Korean food, like... <laughs> I mean, I don't think of <laughs> vegan food being Korean. Like, it just doesn't click in my brain, you know? Yep, I, yep. I mean, I, I love Korean short ribs. Like, what are we talking about? I here? had the same problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because you both bring this up that for me, I, I think of indigenous people. I think, you know, Joanne, you know that my family's from Puerto Rico. And there has been this massive vegan movement in Puerto Rico. And you think about that food, pernil. Uh, chicken. I mean, it's heavy, heavy animal protein. And yet, there is this, you know, vegan movement across the island and throughout the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit about it's such a strange dichotomy to embrace your culture, right? Embrace your being Korean, embrace my being Puerto Rican, and not lose sight of the fact that I can still be in this culture and choose to um, lead a different way of life. Because let's face it, if you're vegan, that is a way of life. You're not just altering your diet. 
how do you maintain that integrity and stay true to those two things? Are the two things mutually exclusive? Because I try explaining this to my 85-year-old mother, and she's like, que? These people don't eat carne? What is that? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah. And she thinks, you know, she's, she thinks they're crazy. At first blush, it does sound crazy. But I think if you do a little bit of digging, you'll realize that most cuisines are heavily vegetable-centric. They may be relegated to a side dish or as a garnish or as something that provides texture or things like that. But for example, in Korean cuisine, it's like 80% vegetables, pickled vegetables, cured vegetables, sauteed vegetables. Chinese food is very similar to that. I mean, Chinese food, they know how to cook vegetables better than anybody, I feel like. And so my grandmother was a farmer. Our yard was corn, squash, perilla leaves, peppers, tomatoes. I mean, all totally 100% vegan. <laughs> and all of these sauces, soy sauce is vegan. The barbecue sauce that you're putting on those short ribs is likely vegan. I mean, it's made out of soy. It's made out of garlic. You know, we love our garlic in Korean cuisine. Um, kimchi, take out that fish sauce and it's vegan. And so for me, I discovered that I had actually been flattening my own cultural cuisine by thinking that it was merely short ribs, pork belly, and fish sauce. There's so much more to Korean food, and I suspect many other cultural cuisines, than sort of the top three things you think of on YouTube when, you're, when you Google that food, you know? I, there's just more to it. I actually was really tickled. My mother sent me a link to a YouTube video that was about me, not by me, but that was about this girl from America who is, you know, making Korean food without meat for American people. And it was a, you know, couple of popular Korean YouTubers. And they were so proud of me. Oh, look at this Korean American. She's showing American people how delicious Korean food is. And yeah, it makes total sense that she's vegan and that there's no meat in this because Korean food, generally, you don't actually eat a lot of meat. That's for special occasions. It's for birthdays. It's for graduations. It's not really meant to be eaten every day. It's the kimchis and the muchims and the jjigae's that are not meat-centric that are eaten every day. If you're not Korean yourself, which, you know, to be honest, I'm Korean-American, and there is a distance between Korean and Korean-American. And so a lot of my understanding of what Korean food is when I wasn't taking it for granted in my own home is a function of what I see in a menu at a restaurant. And people go to restaurants for special occasions, even in America still, but certainly in other countries, restaurant going is still like Ponderosa for us. It was a special occasion thing, you know? And when you see a menu, it's going to be full of those things that people want to eat during special occasions. We would always go to these restaurants. And, and when I went with non-Korean people to a Korean restaurant, they would always order bibimbap. I was like, why are you ordering bibimbap? But this is what we <laughs> eat every day at home. You know, like, what are you doing that? You don't want to. Why are you wasting your restaurant trip eating right. the thing that literally is leftovers in a bowl? Like, why would you do that? So I think maybe it makes sense why people think of meat because it's a special occasion food. Joanne, can you tell us your memorable last non-vegan meal? Yes, I know exactly what it was. 
Okay, so I lived in this building in Chicago as a high rise and connected to it. You know how these special fancy high rise buildings, they often have a restaurant attached to it. And in my case, it was a small little cafe and they had on the menu one of my favorite things, fried chicken and waffles. And I will admit I'm a big fried chicken lover. I was um, before I went vegan. And I remember my boyfriend was not with me at the time. And I was like, oh, I can have a fried chicken sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> or I can get this, you know, waffle and fried chickens. He's not here. I'll eat it. Nobody needs to know. It's just <laughs> me. And so I remember I walked in there. I was table for one. I ordered my fried chicken and waffles. I enjoyed it. It went very quickly. And then I went back up to my apartment and that was that. And I remember thinking to myself, to be honest, that was really, really good. But wow, five minutes, maybe 10 of enjoying this. Ultimately, I don't know that it was like worth it. Two weeks later, when I was walking back to my apartment, I smelled the chicken and I was like, oh my God, that's so good. Maybe I can just have another one. And I remember thinking, no, you know, like I now know what goes into making that dish right, and right. giving me that pleasure for five minutes. I'm like, I don't think it's worth it anymore. The same feeling I have might have saw when I'm having a weak moment and traveling and I stop and grab a Whopper with cheese. Mm -hmm. It's delicious for five minutes. But then I'm like, God, why did I do that? That was the worst decision I ever made. Yeah. In 2019, you visit a woman you call the OG Korean vegan. Can you talk <laughs> about that a little bit? Yeah. So for my birthday, my sister-in-law and her mother, who is very connected to the Korean Buddhist community, they arranged for a meeting with Jeonggwan Sunim. She is Jeonggwan. Um, she was featured in the season three opener of Chef's Table. She's a very famous Buddhist nun in Korea. She was featured by Eric Repair obviously very famous chef here in the United States as creating some of the most exquisite, delicious food he's ever tasted. And I believe he was perhaps still is a practicing Buddhist. And so I got to meet with her. And the lovely thing about Jeonggwan Sunim is that her veganism, like you had said, Marisol earlier, it's not just food. It's not just what you don't eat and what you do eat. It's her whole life is about compassion and doing the least amount of harm to all living things, including herself and her own body and her own heart and her own soul. So having a chance to have some tea with her for about an hour and talk with her and, of course, show her my Instagram account <laughs> uh, and just kind of fangirling her, it was incredibly important. But ultimately, it very much shaped my understanding of what, quote, veganism is and what it should not be and how very counterproductive gatekeeping compassion can be. That should exist somewhere on a wall, I feel like, <laughs> that phrase. For real. Compassion is in short order, unfortunately. Yes, it is. And the idea that only certain people can practice it as long as you don't eat this way or, you know, like veganism must be this. You are not a vegan if you accidentally drop a little bit of honey onto your cereal or even purposefully, you know, it's, it's like, all right, I understand the value of proxies. 
I certainly understand the importance of language. I'm sure the two of you as communicators understand, well, it is important to be precise with your language, to understand the parameters of a word and what that means and what it means to the people you're communicating with as well as to yourself. But at a certain point when it's no longer just a function of making sure you can communicate clearly with people, but more a tool for you to say, you're not in the club, you're not a member of us, you're not as compassionate as I am. When it now becomes a tool to rule people out and exclude people, then I do think it becomes completely counterproductive and sort of unfortunate because veganism is an arm of compassion. It's a tool for compassion. And gatekeeping it is one of the most uncompassionate things that I can think of doing. <laughs> you are, interestingly enough, the second chef, cookbook author, female extraordinaire, Aww. who went from being a lawyer to being oh, a chef. Yeah. We had Valerie Lomas on the Yay. show. <laughs> and, uh, and we ran the joke. What was the joke? You went from tort to tart. It was corny. It worked with her. It won't work with you. But you get you get what I'm saying. How on earth? How do you how do you women do this? How do you go from law to to cooking? Well, I, you know, I don't want to speak for Valerie, but I will say like in my own experience, it was hard for me to find a woman lawyer who genuinely felt very content with her job and was also a total badass at it and was also a nice person. I love my firm and I think my firm is full of incredible mentors, many amazing female practitioners, but I had a hard time finding the female counterpart to the many males that I was seeing it was like I love my job. I come here every day and I'm pumped and I'm excited, you know? And I'm like I don't hear that from women. Did I like get jazzed and excited every single morning? No, I had blood pressure go up every single morning. That was the first thing is huge cortisol like sweeping through my body the minute I see my building when my husband turned the corner to drop me off at work, you know? And I was like, is this what it is? It, it can be. Maybe it is. And that's not a terrible life. But I was given this opportunity when I started my TikTok account to start dreaming a little bit bigger than that to start dreaming about a career where I didn't have to wake up with that cortisol sweeping through my body, where I actually could, at the end of the day, see something that I created out of my own heart and hands and be proud of and be excited by. When that opportunity came, I wasn't about to dismiss it out of hand. I felt like it was a gift and it would have been very arrogant of me to turn away from it. You're listening to our conversation with Joanne Lee Molinaro. She's known as the Korean vegan by millions of fans online. We're talking about her culinary journey. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Joanne shares some of her favorite recipes from the book. There's Korean rice, of course, and a riff on pecan pie. She'll also describe the care she took when developing a vegan kimchi recipe. I really wanted to honor kimchi because I feel like in doing that, I was really honoring my family's cuisine and their culture and the things that they left behind when they came to the United States. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Our guest this hour is Joanne Lee Molinaro. We're talking about her culinary and online journey as the Korean vegan. Her first cookbook is The Korean Vegan Cookbook. The book is a culmination of Joanne's Korean-American identity and her commitment to plant-based eating. Now, you won't find lists of ingredients you can sub in for the traditional Korean spices and sauces called for in Joanne's recipes, and that's deliberate. We asked her about this. I just want to make sure that the food tastes good. Right. Like, that's what I care about the most. In order to ensure that, short of me being in your kitchen and cooking for you, I'm giving you the information you need, which is number one, here are the ingredients, but also number two, look, I understand that these ingredients may not be as easily accessible as paprika, but if you try and sub in paprika for kochukaru, it's not going to taste good <laughs> or it will taste very different. <laughs> but we all have Amazon now. You can get most of these ingredients from Amazon in two days. All this talk about paprika and it's kochukaru. Kochukaru. Mm-hmm. What? are the staples of the Korean pantry? Yes, gochukaru is a big one. And I say that one because I know it's a little bit more difficult to get. They don't generally sell that at Western grocery stores. You do need to get it online or you need to get it at an Asian grocery store. Gochukaru is Korean pepper powder. So you take Korean chilies and you dry them and then you pulverize them. So it's just like a spice. And it's very similar to paprika in both texture and perhaps a little bit in flavor because paprika is you know, red bell pepper, right? And then, you know, gochujang um, is the sauce counterpart. So it's like a paste. It looks a lot like tomato paste and it has that sort of same rich umami, but it's spicy. It's a little bit sweet. And then it's also got that funkiness because of the fermented soybean. And then you have tinjang, which is, you know, straight up fermented soybean paste. Um, it's a lot like miso, but it's more intense. And then you also have soy sauce and a variety of different kinds of soy sauces. Those are like the basic staples of my pantry. And many of them you absolutely can get at your Western grocery stores, but some of them you can't. And some of them, even if you can, you're not necessarily getting the best soy sauce. You're not getting the best gochujang if you get it from the Western one. Well, you talk about soy sauce being deeply misunderstood. (laughs) Uh, What should home cooks know about soy sauce and how to use it to its best effect? You know, unfortunately, I think some people have assumed that soy is bad for you. Like it's just plain a bad food for you. And and I just thousands and thousands of years of Asian cooking and their health <laughs> uh, beg to differ. And so when it's prepared the right way, when you're not using highly processed soy, which unfortunately does tend to prevail in the United States, but when you're using organic soy, non-GMO soy, when it's fermented, mm-hmm. that's the key. When it has been fermented and gone through that sort of curing, almost purifying process, it becomes an entirely different product in my view. The other thing is in Korean cuisine and in many cultures, many Asian cultures, there's like a hundred different kinds of soy sauces. It's not just like that thing that you get that you dribble all over your sushi (laughs) in a Japanese restaurant. There's like so many different kinds. Some are used for making more sauces. Some are used for making stews. Some are used for stir fries. Some are used, you know, for injecting into your protein. There's lots of different kinds. And they have different uses. The kind that I use almost all the time is the one for stews because I love to make Korean stews. So I go through those like 
a bottle a week. <laughs> and while we're talking about ingredients, we also got to talk about dried mushrooms a little bit because for a vegan, that's a great way to get a lot of flavor pretty quick. Absolutely. And you would know this better than most people, Chef, is that, you know, there are like a bajillion different kinds of mushrooms out there too. Yeah. I mean, and each one does provide different kind and different intensity of flavor. For example, like dry porcini mushrooms are so great for creating a very dynamic broth. I feel like shiitake mushrooms create a sense of intense earthiness as well. You know, whether you're using them in your stock or your sauce or, you know, chopping up the reconstituted versions for your stir fry mushrooms. Again, I mean, I always have like seven bags of dried mushrooms in my pantry. I like to keep a variety of them, but my go-tos are definitely the shiitake mushrooms just because I love their earthiness and their meatiness. Can we talk about the basics? Yeah. Um, where it all yeah. starts. Like I knew that my target audience probably had not cooked a lot of Korean food before and may not have cooked, period. And so I wanted to start with what I called like, hey, like if you can master these things, you're like so already well on your way towards having a very, what I thought was a very traditional Korean meal experience, at least as I understood it from growing up. And so, of course, you're going to start with rice because <laughs> like rice is the satellite, you know, of, of every meal. I mean, other than noodles, when you're having like, you know, what Korean people view as Chinese noodles, you start with rice. And then you have your panchans and you have your all the things. But I started with the rice because, you know, that fight that I talk about in the introduction to the rice recipe with my dad, how he like had a meltdown because I didn't cook the rice well. I mean, that's very understandable because in, in Korean culture, like rice is survival. Rice means you live and you don't die. So when you F up the rice, it's offensive. <laughs> <laughs> I, have a, I have a very dear friend who is also Korean. And she said, if we have a meal without rice, my mother's going to think we're rich. <laughs> because she filled us up on rice. That was like the first thing that she gave her growing up because it was they grew up with nothing. Yep. So let me, let me ply you with, with rice and then tiny little pieces of protein because that's all they could afford. Wow. Yep. Yep. You know, it's funny because rice is one of those things. It's one of the most searched things on the internet when it comes to food and recipes and cooking because so many people, they, they mess up making rice. I get asked a lot, how do you make your rice so good? And, you know, with my French training, you know, I'm, I'm fluffing it and forking it and doing all the proper things to it. But how would it differ, I guess, from like a Korean style rice that, that you would make compared to like a rice someone would make at their house just one to one or two to one? I don't know how other people make it. I know how I was taught to make it and how I ultimately kind of came up with my own sort of preferred uh, mix, if you will. And that's yeah. the one that's in the cookbook. Like this is my everyday go-to rice. Although I've recently started adding a little farro to it as well. Great grain. Yeah, I know. I mean, like, I've always enjoyed mixed grains. My mom, she's like rice queen. Like she adds like beans and all, like lima beans and, um, you know, soy bean. And she does all the things and her rice is absolutely gorgeous. But that's a little advanced for me and it, it requires soaking, which I don't like to do that. And so what I like to do is I like the mix of brown rice and sweet brown rice. 
they're different textures, they're different colors, and it's really pretty. And then I do like adding pearled barley because again, it adds that sort of like nice little like, oh, that's a little something different, you know. And then I add just two tablespoons of that black forbidden rice because it creates this absolutely gorgeous color. Your rice comes out purple instead of brown or white. I think it's better for you. And it just creates a lot of dynamic texture to your rice. The <laughs> The thing that always trips people up with rice is how much water do I put in? (laughs) And for me, the way that I learned, like I distinctly remember my father showing me, okay, you pour the water in and then you put your hand in the water and then it goes to this part of your hand and that's when you know you have enough water there's no measuring cups like nothing like that it's like how much of your hand is submerged in the water that's how you do it (laughs) that is exactly how i learned i had a finger thing like you put the rice to here then it goes to here i'm like it's not that hard i mean but i'm gonna tell you joanne i'm gonna borrow your idea of adding a little of that black forbidden rice to it what a great idea Oh, it's so great. And you don't need a lot. I think if you use too much, it will be overpowering because mm-hmm. you know how it is. That texture is, is it's got a bite to totally. it, you know, but it's beautiful. And I think the only other difference would be Koreans, they use their stone pot, the tolsot, which is, you know, the, the one that's literally carved out of a rock, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, those <laughs> pots for making their rice. And it can create sort of a lovely kind of texture to the bottom of your rice if you do it nice. You know, that's how you get that crackling rice. It's nice. Mm-hmm. And no fat of any type in there. No, we no fat. I've never put in fat. I've never even put in salt. I'm sure you could to flavor it. I've never seen it done. My parents have never done that. Like I said, the only thing my mom does that's fancy is she soaks a bunch of beans and then she adds it to the rice. Wow. I'm going to add a little bit of really thick soy sauce to it next time. That's what oh. I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like my favorite meal after the rice is cooked. You know, once the rice is cooked, my favorite snack is adding soy sauce, sesame oil, and sesame seeds. And that's perfect. I like that. I have done that. As we mm-hmm. wind down, can you describe a couple of recipes for us? You know, I would say right now, the recipe that's been really popular is uh, my pecan pie. Um, yeah, it's Great. it's a pecan red bean pie. You know, chef, you might appreciate this because you're familiar with Southern cuisine. And the pecan pie has like sort of a very revered place in, in people's hearts. But for a lot of Asian palates, American desserts can be a little bit on the sweet side for them. And so I was really challenged to come up with a dessert that's traditionally American, but would appeal to my very not traditionally <laughs> American parents. It's a tough challenge. And so I was, yeah, I was like, well, how do we make this dessert that is a pecan pie, but maybe isn't as sweet for them and is also vegan? You know, how do I get that lovely custard, <laughs> yeah. you know, but it is not too sweet and it still is a pecan pie. You may be familiar with aquafaba you know, bean liquid in a can, you can actually whip that up into a meringue. It's pretty miraculous. If you've seen it on YouTube, it's insane. The bean, I was like, what if I use beans for the filling of my pie? Then I was like, okay, I don't think my parents would go for like a black bean filling (laughs) for a pecan pie. And then I was like, wait, what about red beans? Oh, they love red beans, you know? And I was like, this is something that they grew up eating. And so I ended up using that for the filling. Turned out beautiful, lovely kind of custard-like filling, not overly sweet. And it's a flavor that my parents completely recognizes and it pairs so well with pecans. Nice. Well, on the opposite end of the spectrum, can you give our listeners the ABCs of kimchi making? 
oh, there's no ABCs. It's like A B C D E F G H I J K. <laughs> like for kimchi making, I mean, there's just so much that goes into it. I was very careful with my kimchi recipe where I am not hacking my way through this. Do not use a knife to cut this. No, you use your bare hands. You do not chop it up. No, you fold it up create this beautiful little package so that you get the pockets of gas that are going to help with the fermentation. Why don't you cut it? Because then you pack up all the beautiful inner leaves of this cabbage. That's why you don't cut it. Like there's all of these steps to it. And I really wanted to honor kimchi in the recipe that we put together because I feel like in doing that, I was really honoring my family's cuisine and their culture and the things that they left behind when they came to the United States. The three things that I do talk about is salting. That's kind of the pre-fermentation process. The saucing, which is actually a newer development to kimchi making. You know, before it was just salting and fermenting, but, you know, they wanted to fancify it. So they added sauce. And that's where you get that gorgeous, rich, beautiful, vibrant red color. And then it's the fermenting, which is you, know, you leave it out for a few days whatever sort of texture you like is sort of what guides how much time you spend fermenting it. What about your angry penny pasta dish, which I understand fuses your husband's Italian culture and veganism? Arabiata literally means like angry. Mm -hmm. So it's like angry pasta. So I wanted to create a dish that was sort of a take on arabiata, but that also infused sort of Korean flavors. And I was like, well, what's the spiciest Korean food? Takpokki. <laughs> you know, like as the Korean, very popular Korean street food. And it's the rice cakes that's sort of drowning in this very spicy red sauce. And so I was like, okay, well, why not make a pasta using that same sort of idea of takpokki, that spicy sauce that's gochukaru and gochujang, um, a little bit sweeter, which actually arabiata, because some of the peppers that they use can be a little bit on the sweet side. So that's really how, how that pasta came to be. A lot of the food that we eat in my house is like that. Anthony loves pasta. I mean, he could eat it every single day. I made a lentil bolognese yesterday that was deglazed with soy sauce and pinjang. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, you said street food, and one of the things I love the most in this book, I, I'm so excited about it, is this Korean barbecue black bean burger. This looks absolutely incredible. Thank you. That was like one of the first things that I developed because I loved hamburgers, <laughs> like, you know, like I really loved like the greasy, like melty, cheesy burger with a stack of like really thick fries, you know, like yeah. that was like my I feel sorry for myself meal, especially when I was traveling for work. I was like, OK, you get to order that greasy cheeseburger off the menu with a side of fries. So I was like, how do I recreate that? I don't want to miss that for the rest of my life because I'm vegan. Like, you know, there's a way to do this. So Serious Eats, my first stop, that blog, I learned so much about how to kind of create texture, the components of a good burger. You know, you got to have fat in there. You have to have something with bite, can't be mushy. I sort of started there fundamentally and then kind of built on that. And then the flavors is where I was like, all right, this is where I make it Korean. And I use my mother's barbecue sauce, which again, brought me right back to her kitchen. And we're sort of right back to where we started. And I wonder if right before we go, you have a prolific presence online and you are the antithesis of all the toxicity that is so accessible in social media. A lot of what toxicity represents is a 
fundamental unwillingness or inability to be honest with ourselves, you know, honest with our pain, honest with our challenges, honest with our ignorance. It's an unwillingness to be humble, also to really face our anxiety and our fear. I mean, it's like all of that kind of wrapped into it. Toxicity is, I think, at bottom, a response to fear. We're afraid of a lot of different things, of not living up to the expectations of our parents, of ourselves, of the world. We're afraid of being alone. Um, we're afraid of being unloved. And toxicity is a way of coping with that. And it's a terrible way of doing it. But unfortunately, it's the easy way. And so what I try to do in the messaging in the Korean vegan, whether it's in my cookbook or in my social media posts, is to continue to point the finger at you, but not in a negative way, like you're to blame, but more like you have the power. You have the power to change these things in your lives that you're unhappy about or that are making you sad or that are making you feel alone. I'm not saying that you're going to eradicate these things from your life, but you have the power to rise above it and make a difference in your own life, in your family's lives and in the lives of everyone around you. I feel like that has to be the answer to what we're all going through right now. That was the Korean vegan Joanne Lee Molinaro. Find her online, everywhere. She's at The Korean Vegan. And want to try some of that yummy-sounding riff on a classic pecan pie? The recipe's on our site. Joanne also shared a recipe for her version of grilled steak. Of course, it's using shiitake mushrooms and Joanne's mother's Korean barbecue sauce. You'll want to slather that on everything. Visit ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Tolarski. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. 